Hello and welcome back. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We're going to jump straight back into Dr. Death Part 2. There is so much mystery surrounding the man they call Dr. Death. He is suspected of killing upwards of 215 people over the span of about 20 years. A small genocide by one of the most respected doctors of the area. The concept is hard to believe it is supposed to be. Harold Shipman, who would later be deemed Dr. Death, began his career at Leeds Medical School in 1965. After the passing of his mother Vera, Shipman would become determined to make the medical field. He had failed the entrance exam multiple times before finally making it into Leeds. He graduated in 1970 and in 1974 started working as an assistant general practitioner at the Abraham Omerod Medical Centre in West Yorkshire. Shipman quickly gained the reputation of the outgoing young doctor who brought new methods to an old field. He was confident and friendly with the partners of his practice. A charming smile would win his patients. Even though his partners and patients loved him, those who worked under him saw his true aside. From the sheltered life his strict mother had given him, Shipman maintained a superiority complex and expressed it with those who worked below him. He would oftentimes demean his employees and even call them stupid. He was resistant to anyone questioning his methods and he showed his true colours of things having to be done his way. Yet something even darker lied behind the kind eyes of this soon-to-be monster. Shipman had been falsifying prescriptions for pethidine. Pethidine is a synthetic opioid the effects resemble that of morphine, the drug that Harold would watch be administered to his mother every day after school. Suspicion arose, but Shipman's respect in the community had shielded him. All of his partners defended him as being upstanding and the allegations subsided. The watchful eye of the pharmacist maintained vigilance though, and soon an investigation took place. Upon looking at the prescription amount and the patient's files, it would come out that this innovative new doctor had been keeping extremely poor records of the drug he was administrating to his patients. Even more, this didn't cover how much he was stealing from the pharmacy. Pethidine, like all opioids, is extremely addictive. This led police to consider the doctor may have been selling it. When the partners of the practice approached Shipman in a meeting, his first instinct was to lie. Shipman knew the facts were hard to beat, so he admitted his guilt. But his sociopathy showed. He tried to charm his fellow practitioners by admitting his addiction and drug abuse, but suggesting they should be in on the con, that they should simply know about it. 
and continue to allow him to do it and furthermore to potentially help. The room of shocked faces without hesitation denied the proposal. The man they came to love and respect shattered and shipment peeled from the facade. Quickly he turned on his partners screaming first that he would resign then just as quickly he took back his resignation stating that if they wanted him gone that they would have to force him to go. His wife Primrose was called and she joined her husband suggesting they force him from the property. Police came soon and did just that. Dr Shipman paid a fine of £600. Even during the legal process, Shipman was made to return to medicine. In 1976, he joined Newton Eycliffe Health Centre. He was upfront about his legal troubles and the health centre placed a few caveats on his hire. First, Shipman was not to be in control of any narcotics. Second, he must continue to see a psychiatrist and if at any point he violates these conditions, he can lose his medical practice permanently. For the next year, he was clean. It is unknown if Shipman had killed anyone up to this point. It is very possible that he did. After a year of working at Newton Eycliffe Health Centre, Shipman left for Donnybrook. He would spend the majority of his career there. When he was hired onto the Donnybrook staff, his caveats were lifted. Because his drug use did not result in harm to his patients, his ban was lifted. Ironically enough, it would be opioids that would become his weapon of choice. Donnybrook reignited Dr Shipman. The young innovator was back. The community was magnetised to this doctor who represented them. What a doctor should be. The man would go out of his way to check on his patients. In a time when home visits were becoming a thing of the past, Dr Shipman made it a point to continue his loyalty to his older patients. They trusted him to be there for them, and he was. The average office visit was supposed to be seven minutes, but Shipman would always take extra time for his patients. His surgeries would also stretch about half an hour. Shipman was confident, but his loner side was more prominent than his first practice at Abraham. It's impossible to exactly pinpoint when Shipman began his murder spree. He could have right from the beginning, or perhaps after his return to the practice, following his rehabilitation. Suspicions first arose when a following practice was concerned about the number of Shipman's patients who were coming up deceased. The Brook practice was three times larger than Shipman's, yet over a three-month period, Shipman's practice had 16 deceased and Brook's had 14. This 16 were only ones who were cremated. This was not accounting those who were buried or simply unaccounted for due to medical misfiling. The Brook practice was made aware of this large number due to a form, Form C, that was required by law for another practice to examine the disease for any suspicious or violent circumstances. The Brook practice informed police of the suspicious numbers.
The investigation was coordinated by Detective Inspector David Smith. As the detective looked into the murders, he asked to see the certified deaths over the course of six months. Over six months, Shipman had certified over 31 deaths, but due to clerical errors, only 20 were able to be brought up. Smith did not fully understand what these numbers meant, therefore never took seriously the severity of them. D.I. Smith looked into the causes of death and decided, because they were all similar, that there was no cause for alarm. Nor was he concerned that 13 out of 14 deaths were women. Smith, on April 15, 1998, closed the investigation, after never have taken the investigation seriously from the start. After the investigation, or Shipman's awareness of the investigation, there was a short hiatus of the murders. On June 24, 1998, Kathy Grundy passed away unexpectedly at the age of 81. She had been in good health and had been visited by her doctor. Her daughter, Angela Woodruff, was a practicing attorney and was baffled by her mother's will. The will stated, All my estate, money and house to my doctor. My family are not in need and I want to reward him for all the care he has given to me and the people of Hyde. He is sensible enough to handle problems this may give him. As a daughter of Grundy, Angela was entitled to her inheritance and estate. Angela also oversaw her mother's legal concerns. Shipman had committed fraud, unfortunately made a crucial mistake. Woodruff took it upon herself to investigate this and found that Shipman had an investigation just months before for the potential killing of his patients. She had toxicology reports done for her mother and they found opiates in her system. Mrs Grundy had never been prescribed opiates. Also, Woodruff earned a warrant to search Dr Shipman's home and upon search they discovered the typewriter used to forge the will. On September 7th, 1998, Dr Harold Shipman was finally arrested on suspicion of the murder of Mrs Grundy and the forgery of her will. The families of the victims were interviewed and a familiar story began being told. The cold doctor who would show his true colours by claiming the victims' families should have known better. That their loved ones died of horrible illnesses and old age and their families should have done more to make them comfortable. Some of the victims who had died were pronounced dead prematurely and the families were told that there was no reason to call for an ambulance. To Dr. Death's surprise, breath re-entered the patient's bodies. Unfortunately, in those cases, the victims had already lacked so much oxygen to their brains that they were essentially vegetable and would end up passing within 48 hours. The trial was extensive and throughout Shipnam maintained that he was innocent. He would claim this until the day he died. The defence did not have much to go against. They blew off Shipman's possession 
of the drug as a slip of mind, stating that shipman is human and we all make mistakes. Only in this way would shipman be considered to have human qualities. He was sentenced to life without parole on the count of 15 murders and one count of forgery. Without Shipman ever admitting to his crimes, a deep investigation ensued to discover the full extent of his crimes. In total, there were 493 deaths that Shipman had been involved in. The detectives working on the case made use of medical files, witness accounts and family members in order to make any confirmation that these deaths were indeed murders. Of the 493 deaths, 215 were confirmed to have been purposefully by Dr. Shipman. His first confirmed kill came in 1975 on March 17th. Eva Lyons, aged 70, had been given a lethal dose of a synthetic opiate to the back of the hand. She had been suffering from a terminal cancer and with her husband by her side, Dr. Shipman had injected her with death. Lyon's husband was convinced the doctor had done it on purpose. The husband passed off the murder as ending her suffering, a sort of Kevorkian style killing, and it may have been. It is still unclear what caused Shipman to cause so much tragedy, or the reason behind every death. Mrs. Lyons, though, was not his first attempt. His first attempt came just a year prior, in August 1974. Mrs. Elaine Oswald, aged 25, had come in to see Dr. Shipman with pain in her left side. Mrs. Oswald is the only case that involved a living person to tell the tale. Shipman diagnosed her with a kidney stone and suggested that he come by the next day in order to take blood samples. Urine samples are common procedure for kidney stones, not blood samples. This leads investigators to believe that this was strategic to get Mrs. Oswald alone at home. The following day, Dr. Shipman had made his visit. In addition to Mrs. Oswald's already prescribed Diconal, a mild opiate, Dr. Shipman had injected her with pethidine, the drug he had been abusing at this time. Mrs. Oswald went into respiratory arrest. Dr. Shipman began administering CPR on his patient, bringing her back to life. Again, without a confession, it is unclear what the reasoning was behind the attempted murder and resuscitation of Mrs. Oswald. Like the defence stated, it could have simply been human error. The surprise of respiratory arrest may have shocked the doctor into jumping in and actually saving a patient's life. Mrs Oswald had been well under the age range of all of Shipman's victims. There was some suggestion that perhaps he was attempted to simply get high with another person or even pursue a sexual relation with her. There were 21 total confirmed deaths at Dr Shipman's first residency. After Shipman's trouble with drugs, and rehabilitation, there was a long period of inaction by the murderous doctor. Because of his inability to handle opiates, Dr. Shipman would have trouble acquiring this, his weapon of choice. 
After changing facilities though, and later having his own centre, Shipman would up his hobby quite a bit. Once Shipman left Donnybrook to begin his own practice on Market Street, Shipman developed a more distinguished pattern. He would make visits either playing the caring doctor role or suggesting blood samples, and as he would be taking blood samples, he would administer the lethal dose of diamorphine. The following day, he would prescribe the newly deceased with 30 to 50 milligrams of diamorphine. This backtracking would be his out for any suspicions. He would say that he had prescribed the patient with a drug and they simply overdosed, either purposely or trying to get high. On August 31st, 1993, Shipman had been administering a dose of diamorphine to Mrs. Mary Smith. Her stepdaughters had walked in and saw her sleeping deeply. They had startled Shipman and he was unable to finish giving a lethal dose. This prevented Shipman from future post-prescriptions. He was getting sloppy and predictable. Because Dr. Shipman never spoke, it is hard to understand why he did what he did. The final tally of confirmed comes to 218 deaths, adding the suspected and it is 238. Shipman had never boasted about his killings and his sociopath he was, it would make more sense if he had boasted once he was caught. Looking back at his childhood and how his mother's doctor magically made her pain disappear until the time of her death must have played a significant part. In some Kevorkian fashion, perhaps Dr. Death was trying to alleviate pain permanently from his patients, save them from the cold suffering of death. By administering a harm opiate blanket, his patients were mostly elderly women, like his mother as well. It is clear that he never intended for his work to be found out. He had made sure to destroy a lot of the records. The introduction of computers in 1989 into the medical field allowed these records to remain safe from Shipman. This justifies his resistance to them. It is quite possible as well that he became addicted to taking life. His addiction to pethidine suggests he struggled with addiction and the high of taking life helped to continue him on his path. The police found a jewellery box in Shipman's home, leading them to believe his motives were monetary based. It may have been, though it may also have simply been a side effect of his actual motive. On January 13, 2004, Dr. Harold Shipman looped a white cotton sheet over itself and fastening it to another, the knot had been tight and strong. It was the day before his 58th birthday. He slipped the soft noose around his neck. He left no note, just a sad corpse of an evil man. With no answers and no confessions, the families of those taken are left in constant wonder. If there is any positive to take from this, it was to fix a broken system. Shipman was prolific because he took advantage of a system that had holes in it. Since then, those holes have been filled, but killers will still find ways to exploit the, those openings. 
Britain's most notorious serial killer, left the world in question, who is my doctor, really? So 218 confirmed deaths, that's a very large amount, isn't it? Yeah, I can imagine it'd be more than that, actually. Well, they said 238, which they assumed you was are, him. Mm, accounts vary, though, because you can, when you're actually doing the research behind it and look in more detail, there seems to be a range of numbers across um, different sites. Well, I suppose even when um, he was training as a junior doctor, there may have been some cases which... Um, no one really picked up on. I don't think the measures were probably as, as strict as they are nowadays, so there probably are, you know, um, probably are far more murders than we think or far more... Uh, attempted. Attempted murders, yeah. I would say, than, than we realise without actually having the records. I mean, one of the things that he mentions in the in the reading or that, that we did was that he was against having a PC to have his records on. So surely yeah. if things were handwritten, they can easily be hidden or manipulated, can't they? Well, if it wasn't for Mrs Grundy's daughter looking into the will, there may have been a lot more murders before he was found, if he was found out at all. Yeah, I, I guess that, that can you can say that for a lot of people, can't you? That just by chance, by fortunate chance, someone might, might have been in a situation where they realise that um, there's something that, you know... I mean, to be honest with you, you don't really question a doctor, do you? It's not often you question a doctor and say what they're doing is incorrect or, or they know you you tend to take no. what they say to be the absolute truth. It's very brave, though, to write himself into the will because he did that with a few people, didn't he? Not just Mrs Grundy. No, no, no you're right. But if he's, done it, if he's done it and he's got away with it, which yeah. seems to be the case, then it'd be the tendency that you'll do it a lot more because if you've got away with it the first time, then nothing stops you thinking that you're going to get you know, away with it again and again. And especially in terms of murderers that are not characteristically like him, mm. um, ones that actually get away with it, they feel a sense of power. Yeah. They feel that actually they're going to get away with it a lot more and they, think, they believe themselves to be gods, don't they? Yeah. So they start doing it more and more. And essentially, I think that's exactly how he was. But see, you touched mm. on this, that he didn't, ever take responsibility for it so he didn't seem to crave the attention that came with being a notorious killer because he never he never spoke about it did he no he didn't no which makes me think Mm. is it more the influence of seeing his mum die and that maybe in some twisted way he thought he was helping the patients if that was the case and he was in jail for it do you not think he would have spoke up and say that was the reason. I mean, the defence said that was yeah. the reason. But if that was the case, do you not think he would have spoken on the media or maybe want to clear his name off that and say, actually, yeah. this is the reason I did it? The fact that he said nothing at all, is it, it comes across as quite guilty, I think. Maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe mm. it started out like that, but then he, like they said, he had an addictive personality and he became addicted to killing. And then mm. from there, um, that's why he did it, just the joy of killing. Yeah. I mean, you can't really speak for the fact that he was addicted. We don't know how addicted he was to Pasadena, no. whether that would ha- had an issue on his mental health itself or uh, maybe, you know, if if he was addicted, did that have an impact on the way he was thinking at the time? I mean, the thing that I found unusual was the investigator dropped the case after saying that the f- initial people that he killed in his first practice all died in a similar way. I don't see why that would make you drop a case. But the number of times that happens... 
Yeah. There's lots of cases where they think it's so absurd and silly that someone in such a high position would be capable of doing such a thing. They tend to just push it off onto the side until something does happen and it does come to light that this person was doing that. I mean, I've heard that in numerous cases where that's happened, where the police will say, oh, yeah, it wasn't... How often is it... I'll give you quite a simple situation here. How often is it that you hear when the police say, oh, we learn from our mistakes? Yeah. It feels like after every single crime that's committed, they say, we'll learn from our mistake. Uh, it doesn't have to be a murder. It can be, if you look at an aspect of uh, social um, well-being of children, mm. and often children yeah. fall through the net or something happens or a child's being abused and they're killed. And... They always say a new law comes into place and they say, oh, next time we, we will um, put better measures in place. Or and in, in, in a day and age that we're in now, for example, where you've got such communication that's available, you could have a centralised system where all the information goes to. And this day and age, there's still, there's still issues. There's issue, issues with uh, the social services not communicating well enough with doctors, not communicating yeah. enough with schools. And there's always someone who slips through the net. I think the thing with that is, is they say there's a central system, but there isn't no. different trust no. work on different yeah. systems and then information gets lost. Yeah. Um, it should just all be in one place and then everyone can access it. Yeah. Who needs to access it? I suppose like when we did the episode on Beverly Allen, the angel of death, mm-hmm. and we touched on people not questioning um, people who are in sort of healthcare and assuming that what they're doing is the best for the patient is maybe another reason that the case got dropped. Yeah. Because like you said, people don't have the knowledge. And people um, trust people in the yeah, medical profession they trust a lot them, more. They'll... They trust them to do the, the best for the patients, yeah. not to cause them harm, because that's the oath that they take. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean everybody who's in that position is going to mm-hmm. take that oath seriously. Yeah. Right, so that uh, rounds up Harold Shipman. It was a... Uh, Quite a roller coaster, really, over two episodes. So, yeah, Shipman has been in the media quite a lot, actually. There's so much literature on him and, and media items that are on him based on videos that were made. One of the first things I would say was um, Prescription for Murder, which is a book that's based massively around his life, um, his childhood, including all the continuation um, of death. And there's been a few TV movies made of him as well. One was um, a TV movie in 2002 called Dr. Death and also a TV movie made in 2018 that is also called Dr. Death. So I can imagine there'll be a lot of more videos to follow or certainly films that are probably related around Dr. Harold Shipman. You're just nodding your head. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen anything specifically. Yeah. Uh, about him actually there's lots and lots of books books, isn't there Mm. absolutely lots of books out there and there's many many articles based around there there's a like the the tv movie was a a two-hour drama that was based around shipman i suppose it makes it difficult because like you said he never really spoke about Mm -hmm. them so there's only so much they're only going to go into the evidence that was actually found um about you know what what the actual doctors who from the Brooks Medical Centre. So they had quite a bit to say about that. And there'll be people that have just been, uh, who probably were patients of Harold Shipman. A bit like uh, our brother's friend who was a, a young patient. He said uh, Shipman was a fantastic doctor. 
that he wasn't really at the age where anything was, would have been an issue. <laughs> yeah, well... He lived to tell the tale. Yeah, yeah. Mm. He wasn't the age group that he was targeting, so he probably yeah. was a great doctor for, yeah. the, for, for the rest of his patients. Of course, yeah, he was. Okay, then. I think that wraps it up for today. Um, I'd like to say uh, goodbye from us and hope you join us for our next episode. Um, I'm Shetty. I'm Shabs. Ciao for now. Bye.